Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lasky. I'm a cis white gay man. I'm a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Dr. Anu Hazra, a new uh, longtime friend of the show here, <laughs> our um, go-to resource for infectious diseases. We've had you on uh, once before to talk about monkeypox, and we're bringing you back uh, yeah. because we are um, experiencing a uh, infectious disease outbreak in real time. I figured we should take advantage of this and kind of uh, get a, a view of monkeypox once we've uh, we're in the middle of it or going through it or... We'll talk about whether whether or not we're through it or in the middle of it or all sure. of that too. So, yeah. um, for people who didn't listen to the first part or, you know, mysteriously haven't heard about this in the news, <laughs> thirty second description of what monkeypox is and what we're looking at for us here. Yeah, so monkeypox is a viral infection that is uh, transmitted typically from rodents to humans, um, endemic in certain parts of Africa, with some outbreaks outside of Africa. Uh, what we've been experiencing since early May has been the largest outbreak um, outside of endemic areas, um, really primarily affecting uh, gay and bisexual men men, um, and has really mobilized a lot of testing, treatment, and vaccination efforts across the globe, specifically for our communities. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so I don't know exactly how long it's been since our first episode on monkeypox, but it was, um, we talked about it a lot in comparison to COVID uh, in terms of like preparedness and making sure people get their vaccinations. And there was a big concern that it would blow up to something uh, similar in scale to COVID. Um, and and we also talked a lot about um, the the tendency to describe it as a gay disease uh, and how that's not the case and that it can still very well pass on to um, straight communities or um, not MSM communities. So let's talk about uh, the first part there um, in terms of like numbers and the scale and and what we thought would happen and what actually did happen. So uh, what did we think initially and where are we at now? Yeah, so I think uh, when it, we last met was I think in June or mid to late June, uh, we started seeing case rates start to rise in the United States. And our prediction was that they would it would get worse before it gets better. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, through most of July and into the beginning of August, we were seeing the highest numbers of cases. And the United States um, has now accounted for over a third of all global cases uh, of monkeypox virus. Wow. Uh, what we've noticed has it's, you know, during this time has remained disproportionately impacting gay and bisexual men and sex with men. Um, and so that epidemiology of the outbreak has not changed uh, since we last met, uh, but definitely their numbers have now far exceeded um, those of any other country. What, mm, the, the pop quiz, what, do you know, uh, in terms of like an actual number, what we're at nationally? Uh, yeah, uh, we are at 18,000 cases, the last I checked, uh, but I'm going to check the CDC site right now. To be oh, good. I just pulled it up, 19,465. 19, nice, nice. Okay. Yeah. With Illinois accounting for a thousand of that. So, um, interesting. So is that, I got the vibe and maybe this is just because I'm part of the target community of MSM that like, you know, this was going to be a big thing. Everybody was worrying about it. Uh, and when you say 19,000, I could see, uh, somebody listening being like, well, that's not that much. Like why all the hubbub? Why, you know, 
were we talking about this so extensively to begin with and we're sitting at night like new mexico has 26 cases like obviously new mexico has a disproportionately smaller population but like i i i can see people and, and maybe this is the challenge of being an epidemiologist where like sure. you you have to control people's expectations but also make them take things seriously yeah. and like how do you balance that of like well i don't i don't think that it was that you know we didn't we didn't need to worry that much yeah like, I think with any infectious disease, we never want it to get to pandemic proportions. Mm -hmm. We never want another COVID. Uh, and in order to prevent that, we need to do really early efforts or strategies to reduce transmission. So um, while, you know, 19,000 doesn't sound like a lot epidemiologically when we're seeing it affecting a, a certain population, we're talking about containment, right? So because we want to contain the virus and, and extinguish it. Um, and so that has been that's what's been really difficult uh, through this entire time. And so uh, while 18,000 may not sound a lot compared to the number of COVID cases we hear about on a daily basis, we don't want monkeypox to become the next COVID. And right. so uh, potentially we want to keep those numbers small. And oftentimes that's the tough part with public health because you do all these measures and then people are like, oh, this is all for, for not. And in the real world, like if we didn't do those measures, things could have been a lot worse. So it's sometimes hard to really advertise in general preventative care uh, because of that, because you're not really seeing the end result because the whole point of it is not to see that end result. Exactly. I had heard somebody describe it as like any like, like well done response to an infectious disease is going to seem like overkill. Right. Because you don't know what could have been the case had right. you not done those. So you're like, well, we didn't need to do this because we didn't see any numbers. Well, we didn't see any numbers because we did this. Yeah. So. And all within reason, right? Right. Like, and, and that, you know, I, I think, uh, what, I, what, what we see with monkeypox in general has been really that, you know, United States itself, like, again, we account for 5% of the global population and now over a third of all these cases. So we are obviously a hotbed of this. And then mm -hmm. I will say, I mean, majority of us at least know one or more persons who've been affected by this. And it's not a pleasant disease. You know, I've had friends who were in pain and suffering for weeks from this. So it's not something we want in our communities to suffer from. Um, and definitely something we would want, you know, a strong like um, uni uh, unified response against. Right. But last time we talked, um, there was still a lot of big uh, gay or MSM uh, summer events coming up. Mm -hmm. So um, since we talked, Market Days has come and gone. And I was creating content surrounding monkeypox before Market Days. Uh, and there was a lot of discourse online about how to celebrate Market Days and, and uh, do what you want while also being uh, safe when it comes to monkeypox. And I made a video along the lines of, to a degree, we can't take it upon ourselves to police people's no. personal behavior. It's a no. whole concept of harm reduction that we yeah. talk a lot about here of like, people are going to do what they're going to do. We just have to make sure we can make it as safe as possible. Uh, and it got a lot of flack online um, uh, because people, you know, thought that I was like promoting, you know, capitalism and like, you know, <laughs> just like, you know, Sure. That that aspect of like pride and market days and things over people's personal health. Um, all that to say, did we see any notable increase from any of these events? Uh, and if we didn't, what were some of the measures that people were taking to stay safe during like something like market days? Yeah, yeah. And I think this goes to sort of overall numbers and trends that we're probably going to talk about in general. But yeah. no, we did not see a surge of monkeypox cases after market days. That being said, the majority of people who attend market days are actually from outside Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so they are likely coming from outside even Illinois, large Midwest festival um, that people are coming to. 
Uh, but we did not see a surge of cases in the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois after Lollapalooza, after market days, et cetera. Um, and I agree. I, I think it's a it's a tough balance to strike because you uh, policing what people do does not work. You know, the whole abstinence only messaging does not work. What we can do is we talked about last time is giving people the information, making sure they have the correct information so they can make informed decisions for themselves. And I think, you know, we utilize market days as a really great tool to educate people about monkeypox. We vaccinated uh, nearly 1,500 people uh, uh, at Howard Brown alone through our collaboration with Cellblock uh, during Saturday and Sunday market days. So really leveraging the fact that we're having a lot of folks come together in one place. We can educate them. We can vaccinate them. Uh, we can really make sure that they are you know, given the tools that they need. And you know, even by August, we really did know, and we know even more now, going to a party, going to a bar, going to you know a festival itself that's not how this virus is predominantly transmitted person to person mm -hmm. uh can it happen sure but it's not really the what how we've been seeing this transmitted and so those types of events i would consider uh, still consider low risk and and not surprisingly uh we did not see a surge from that type of activity yeah i it felt a little bit like people were having um you know a little, a little bit of flashback to COVID and that sure. like they hear new infectious disease going around and it must be aeros aerosolized. I got to barricade myself in my room, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so I could see that kind of, you know, uh, flashback to that time in our lives when it comes to, to monkeypox. But that's, that's encouraging to hear that we didn't see a spike and it does make sense because I mean, aftermarket is over, everybody leaves. So how do you check? Like you, you're not going to be able to know yeah. how many infectious infections recur occurred as a result of that but there was also con there was concern going into it that you know chicago was compared to other major cities pretty on it when it comes to vaccinations and I, I, people were worried because most people had only had their first vaccination at sure. that point um people were worried that other uh people from other major cities that weren't vaccinated or didn't have access to it could potentially be in their incubation period bringing it into the city right. would that have been a possible scenario to like it could have been i mean that was on the back of everyone's mind thinking yeah. of you know a large sort of gathering of, of groups that are at risk for this disease would it just end up causing more but what we actually end up seeing is cases ended up starting leveling off in chicago the first week of august and have started have continued to decrease four weeks in a row since then. So if there really was a signal of you know a huge number of new cases uh, from um, uh, uh, from market days, we would have seen that by now. Okay, and, and we haven't. Yeah, that was that was kind of my next question was is it is it decreasing? Is it staying the same? Because I, I've been wanting to make follow up content about monkeypox to kind of explain where we're at uh, and talking to a few different people. They were like, well, we got to wait a little bit to see. You know, is is there, is it a decrease because of people just aren't getting tested? Where does that come from? Um, and that is, that is my next question. Testing wise, is everybody getting tested that has it? Are there people out there that just like, yeah. Yeah. Don't. So when we last met in June, it was still really hard to get a test. Uh, and all testing still had to be approved by the local health department. You know, it wasn't commercialized testing yet. Mm -hmm. And since then, we have had commercialized testing, um, can do up to 80,000 tests a week. We are nowhere near that as a national sort of yeah. um, need or, or demand for testing. Um, you know, but you bring up a good point, um, you know, seeing the leveling off of cases nationally and the decrease of cases in large metropolitan areas like New York City and Chicago, we can't pinpoint exactly why that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a few reasons why that's happening. And, and, and that all sort of informs what the future will look like. Um, I think 
a lot of us have changed behaviors because of this. And that's completely natural. And, and that's something that a lot of us were talking about in our education, mm -hmm. um, changing sort of the way you're having sex, who you're having sex with, your sexual networks, et cetera, to protect yourself. And then the other major change is the biomedical intervention of the vaccine, mm -hmm. um, that a lot of folks uh, who are able to get access to the vaccine have access to the vaccine now, um, that our supply of the vaccine now is matching, somewhat matching demand. Mm -hmm. um, uh, New York City, last 10,000 dose release that New York City did was actually still had doses available at, you know, two hours after that was released versus if you remember back in June or July. 60 like, seconds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's within like eight minutes, mm -hmm. 10,000 doses were were, were uh, taken for. Um, so I think, I you know, our, our vaccine supply is starting to meet our demand, mm -hmm. at least at these larger metropolitan cities. And that's likely also driving down transmission. Um, the CDC actually published a really nice report just this morning trying to model what this outbreak is going to look like mm. in the short term and the long term. And like the crux of the issue is like it's hard to model out, uh, outcomes when you don't know exactly what changed the outcome. So I think as folks are now mm -hmm. more and more folks are fully vaccinated, meaning their second dose um, um, and potentially sort of changing back to, you know, removing some of the behavior changes that they that they implemented um, in July and August, I think that will also sort of tell us where cases go. Yeah, um, that was that was my next question. With COVID, uh, we obviously, and it's still a fear going into the fall that um, being indoors might lead to an increase. Um, it, it has historically for COVID. We know that monkeypox is not aerosolized. And like you said, uh, gatherings are, are low risk. And it's since it's primarily sexually... Um, transmitted, but do you, is that a worry at all with monkeypox when it comes to the, the changing seasons? Yeah. So um, the aerosolized debate is like something that is like a sticking point for like a lot of folks. And I think okay. it's important to know that any virus, if you sneeze high enough or cough enough, can aerosol, all aerosolized meaning it's like it can just hang around the air. Okay. But monkeypox compared to COVID, like you need to be in a room for hours at a time in order to actually get that uh, from a potential aerosol mm -hmm. uh, particle or okay. a droplet particle itself, which is why when we think about non-sexual contact, it's really been household contact. People mm -hmm. who share the same space for prolonged periods of time. Uh, but again, epidemiologically, what we're seeing is not that at all. What we're seeing is really based around sexual transmission in uh, certain sexual uh, networks. For me, it's not the season changing that matters or, you know, us being more indoors that concerns me for monkeypox. It's just, a, you know, when, when people you know, remove certain behavior changes, um, what's going to happen, you know, um, uh, what, what are we going to see in terms of, in terms of numbers? And that's really going to test how protective the Junios vaccine is uh, for folks who are vaccinated. And that's something we're really looking closely at. We're looking at new cases, trying to get data on have they been vaccinated, how long ago were they vaccinated to see, you know, some real world efficacy data on, on the vaccines themselves. Yeah. So it's not a function of the weather. It's more of, you know, People think we're done with summer. Well, I'm not going to a circuit party every other weekend, whatever. Sure. Let me just relax back into my normal behavior now that it's the fall and everybody's, you know, calmed. I mean, there's always that like gay discourse of like, oh, like summer's exhausting to be gay because we're always going out and busy doing stuff. Yeah. So, you know, once that goes away, people are be like, well, I, I don't have to worry about monkeypox anymore because that was a, a summer thing. Now yeah. I'm in the yeah. fall and I can chill a bit. So I, that, that makes sense. Um, we... We're predicting a, a big jump from MSM to straight communities. That was something uh, that we were really intentional about with our messaging in the first place to, to really not paint this as a gay disease. But from what I've been hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, it has stayed mostly in MSM communities. Um, why didn't it make the jump? Um, and 
and and was our because of that was our messaging you know incorrect or, or how does that all pan out no i i think the messaging was really on point and really consistent with what how we've been doing messaging in terms of cdc as well as cdph mm -hmm. the idea that honestly you know there's several ways that monkeypox can be spread from person to person uh, and in this current outbreak we're seeing it spread in sexual networks of gay bisexual men except for men we know sexual networks can overlap between other sexual networks so the concern was always that could this move to another sexual network um and start affecting sort of you know non-queer folks um, and so, uh, and that was always a concern of ours. And I think a lot of the messaging around sort of sexual behavior changes, et cetera, um, may have uh, prevented this from potentially moving. And again, all of this is in terms of containment. When you have uncontrolled spread, that's when it can really move from network to network much mm. more sort of easily or efficiently. Uh, but once you're able to contain the spread, start to see leveling off of new cases and even declines in numbers and cases, then that probability of it jumping to a different sexual network obviously decreases as well. And so that was the whole goal of this containment that we wanted to prepare everyone to like, you know, this is something we're seeing and, and you know, this is not a gay disease by any means. It's just disproportionately impacting um, the gay and bisexual male population. Um, and I think by, you know, again, being able to take measures, albeit a bit more delayed than I would have liked uh, on like a federal and, and state level, but we did get there in the end. Um, I think through actual containment is how we can prevent that spread from to other sexual networks. And we still have not seen that as at least as of the time of this recording. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, it, it, it didn't spread beyond MSM communities because we mobilized semi-efficiently enough to control it within our own sexual networks so it didn't reach that level of, of uncontrolled spread is what you're saying yeah okay yeah. let's dive into a little bit about um the nitty-gritty of the vaccine because most people are now either um due for their second dose got their second dose um that's kind of uh, the vibe I'm sensing where does Chicago sit in relation to other major cities in terms of administering a second dose because initially we have heard you know we'll call you when it comes to getting a second dose and some yeah. people just like get lucky and get them. Other cities are saying like, don't, you know, forget about it. It's not going to happen. So what is Howard Brown's policy on it? Chicago's and... Yeah, yeah. So, you know, moving into the beginning of vaccinations, our concern was like, we have a limited amount of supply, we're going to start implementing a single dose strategy. That's what was first implemented by New York, Chicago followed soon after that, let's try to get one dose into as many arms as possible. Mm -hmm. Um Shortly after that, we realized that, you know, there have been studies on the Genius vaccine specifically of giving it in a different way, uh, meaning giving it instead of, you know, under your tricep in the back of your arm, uh, actually giving it uh, intradermally or actually in your forearm, almost like a, if you ever had a tuberculin skin test or a TB skin test, kind of like that bubble that you have under your arm. Uh, the the biology of that is that you have a lot more immune cells right under your skin. And those immune cells are what really trigger that response uh, after you get vaccinated um, to create antibodies and, and protection. And you essentially need a lower volume under that skin because it creates such a high response than you would be uh, behind your arm. That's the biology of it. Uh, and so essentially you would need a fifth of the dose to create the same response than you would taking the whole vial. So essentially what cities are able to do is increase their vaccine supply fivefold by implementing this strategy. Yeah. Um, and so this has been studied. This is not something that is like new or whatnot. Obviously it's not been studied in like huge populations, but it's been studied to show that folks who got an intradermal dose had equal, if not slightly better immune response than folks who got a subcutaneous dose, which is the way we were giving it initially in June and early July. Gotcha. I, that was the next question on my list because uh, I have a lovely little red bump on my arm from my yeah. second dose that I got at Howard Brown. Uh, and 
it, it was kind of wicked, like, uh, watching it because it looks like a little, like, blister almost. And then, uh, you know, spread to, like, this little red patch on my arm. And yeah. I wanted to tell people, like, no, this isn't a monkeypox blister. It's the vaccine. It's like uh, and itchy I was, and, yeah. Yeah, I was curious on, on yeah, the biology of that and why, why we switched. How... So you said it's been studied. So like, did that research just come out halfway, you know, through this and you're just like, let's just switch. Like, So there's been a lot of work on the genius vaccine, not because of monkeypox, because we've always been wanting to prepare for a smallpox attack. Mm. So that's really been really the, the reason why we have so much data randomly around the genius vaccine is because we always suspected smallpox to be a potential bioterror attack. And so we knew that we had, you know, a limited national stockpile of the genius vaccine. So we wanted to make sure we could test different ways of implementing this. So that was sort of, that was the reason why this was studied. This is an older paper, meaning it didn't come out like just now. It came out about a year or two ago. Uh, but we were using that data to help us sort of, again, weigh the risk, you know, weigh the um, the pros and cons of, hey, like, um, yeah, this is not exactly the way that was fully studied in the actual FDA approval process, but has been studied. And in, in this current situation can help ensure that everyone can get two doses by, by increasing our vaccine supply fivefold. The city of Chicago can ensure that everyone will get two doses mm -hmm. uh, through this uh, through this administration technique. You said something that was really interesting to me um, that the U.S. has been studying this because of a potential bioterror attack, which is not something that ever crossed my mind. Um, and this is maybe a stretch and maybe entering tinfoil hat land. But when this you know started and we were begging for vaccines and it you know was labeled as a gay disease and was very MSM. Uh, there was a lot of an action on government's part to uh, disperse vaccines. You don't have to comment, but I could see how people would like make the allegations that they were, you know, slow to, to give out the vaccine because yeah, where you want to save it for a bioterror attack that might attack, you know, affect, you know, deal with the whole, of the United States rather than just the gays. Um, maybe that's an outlandish suggestion, but I, as a medical professional and somebody who does this a lot, I won't make you comment on that because uh, we try to avoid like politics and things, but um, it's just a really interesting take that I hadn't thought about. Um, I, I, I would say that your take is not an unusual take. Okay. It has been thought of relatively frequently at the beginning of this outbreak. Okay, because the other thing I remember hearing about, uh, and I, I don't know all the facts on it, is that we had like, schedule the shipment from Europe or something that yeah. didn't get cleared? So you know, the majority that? of our national, so in general, you know, uh, a lot of these, um, the, the entire vaccine is part of what we have, our strategic national stockpile. Mm -hmm. So we have a strategic national stockpile of a lot of different treatments, as well as sort of vaccine vaccines in general that, you know, is held by the U.S. government. Uh, the majority of our, of our national stockpile was actually held in Denmark, uh, which is the creator of the Genius vaccine. So we kept it in a storage warehouse in Denmark. The FDA missed their like um, evaluation or their approval process for that warehouse. It went under the regular European authorities approval, but didn't undergo the FDA approval. And that's what held up the doses uh, because FDA couldn't ensure that the warehouse was functioning Same, up yeah. to like standard, which is ridiculous because the European standards are even far more strict than the US standards. And so it was that type of you know ridiculous logistic reason why nearly a million doses or uh, north of 800,000 doses were tied up in Europe mm -hmm. and why, you know again, the vaccine supply was so, such a shortage at the very beginning. If you remember in like late June and early July, uh, we were really crunched for a vaccine and that finally shipment came in mid-July and through the end of July and August, again, we're seeing in the major 
metropolitan cities, vaccine supplies at least closer to meeting the demand now. Yeah, I definitely felt that. Uh, I there was that period that you mentioned at the beginning of it where like people were just like sharing Instagram stories of like I heard right. this place might be giving an out go right. like and or like waiting in hours outside Steamworks that's what, yeah. trying to get a vaccine and they only get two hundred vaccine doses for like five hundred people online. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like literally like would be in group text with people being like, does anyone know how long the line is at steamer? So I might try to like jump it. So it was very like, yeah, uh, word of mouth driven. And now I, I don't feel that at all. And I mean, I, I went in, I got my second dose. I wasn't planning to, uh, I was going to wait until I heard, heard, heard like more about where we were at dose wise, but, uh, it was in Howard Brown for prep blood work. And they're like, Oh, here, I'll just give it to you. I was like, Oh, okay. I, yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been fielding questions from, um, certain uh, people in my life who are not part of the MSM community about when restrictions might loosen um, for them to get the vaccine. Um, and that also kind of necessitates the question, like, will that ever happen? Uh, should, you know, straight people or people who don't, and not men who don't have sex with men have to worry about this? Uh, or can they just kind of, you know? Yeah, I, I think the, um, the, the vaccine criteria will change if the epidemiology changes or it'll change with the epidemiology. Mm -hmm. If we start to see that more cisgender women with no sort of MSM contact are starting to get um, uh, the virus or we're starting to see a spread in other populations, then those populations will be prioritized just like those that are affected. But at this point, um, there's nothing to point to that to happen. Um, and so at this point, there's no planned changes to the vaccine criteria so far. Okay, yeah, that clears that up because I was, you know, Wondering if like is there even a need for for that to widen? But I guess a lot of uh, infectious disease work is you know reactionary to a degree. Like you have to see where the disease goes and follow it. Yeah, and particularly with you know a limited supply of, of vaccines. So even if we can increase our vaccine supply fivefold, mm -hmm. that still you know is still limited in terms of a resource that we have. And so if this is an unlimited resource, sure, I don't think there would be a huge issue to vaccinate. Um, other folks, but since it's still something that's limited, just like we thought about with the COVID vaccinations when it first started, we were really relegating that to people who are at highest risk for severe COVID disease and death, and then it opened up to the population as we had more and more vaccine supply. Uh, we're not expecting the vaccine supply to increase anytime soon, mm -hmm. um, uh, and so this is going to be likely our it. Uh, and, and again, we would change criteria based on changing epidemiology of the outbreak. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, kind of rounding out our time a little bit. Uh, where where do we see this going? I know you mentioned that they're kind of currently studying to see, depending on the virus, like is is it is it is it decreasing? Are are we done with monkeypox? Is it going to be relegated to the summer of twenty twenty two, and you know it'll be a not so fond memory, or is this something that we might have to continue to worry about? Uh, what is our our trajectory going forward look like? Yeah, I think it's too soon to tell. That's a short answer. But I think what what it's really reassuring is seeing again what major cities as well as what Europe and Canada have been looking at their cases that we're seeing again a leveling off of cases nationally um, across the board. Uh, and then specifically in cities like New York, San Francisco and Chicago, uh, seeing case rates on like ongoing decline and significant declines. Um, and, you know, speaking with other Howard Brown providers, we're seeing that specifically in our clinics as well. The number of, you know, potential new cases or whatnot have really dropped off in, in recent weeks, which is really reassuring. Again, the concern is, is this vaccine effect? Is this behavior effect? My gut is likely it's a mix of both. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we know behavior changes are usually temporary. Doing permanent behavior change is really difficult. And so I don't expect the changes in people's behaviors uh, to really sustain uh, through the next few months. And so while 
those potentially are, you know, um, end, we'll see, you know, it'll really give us a more real world effectiveness of the vaccine. If the vaccine is truly effective against, you know, prevention of transmission of monkeypox, um, then I'm hoping that this outbreak will be extinguished. But at least, again, we are in a much better place than we were when we last talked in June. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... So, so if if all of the behavior changes go away um, and all we're left with is a, a vaccine defense, um, are how common are breakthrough cases? Uh, even you know two weeks post second dose, is that something that we've seen? If it does happen, how often should people you know be worried if they're back to their normal life and they're fully vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, we have been looking at specifically here at Howard Brown. I mean, we've given nearly like 10,000 vaccine doses, um, you know, as our like little small little FQHC, yeah. which is, has been incredible. Um, and so we're looking at people who test positive within the Howard Brown system who were vaccinated in the past. And what mm-hmm. we've seen is the lion's share, almost everyone who does test positive for monkeypox after being vaccinated has tested positive within two weeks after their first dose. So really thinking about this is not a vaccine failure. This is just you haven't given your body enough time to really create protective immunity. We have not seen last I checked, uh, uh, which was like I think last time I checked was about a week ago, um, any people who develop monkeypox over four weeks from their first dose. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's reassuring. Yeah, because most people I feel like at least that I've come into contact with or talked to are, you know, post four weeks, their first dose. So that's that's encouraging because we saw. I mean, when the COVID vaccine first came out, we were kind of um, hoping, or at least I remember hearing that it was, you know, going to be this, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. infallible barrier. And then COVID mutated like 18 times and yeah. it ended up, you know, only protecting against one thing. Is We mentioned this, I think, in the first episode about monkeypox, but the mutation is not as... Uh, yeah, biologically, monkeypox virus is a different type of virus than um, than a coronavirus. Coronaviruses, by nature, these respiratory viruses mutate really fast, which gotcha. is why we've always worried about you know a respiratory virus pandemic even before coronavirus because of that case. And monkeypox doesn't have the ability not to say it can never do that. And again, what what feeds that is uncontrolled spread. That's mm-hmm. what feeds a virus to mutate or whatnot. So all the more reason why containment is really important for multitude of reasons. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense and, and, and is encouraging. Um, before we wrap up, I this is kind of a tangent, but it's another little um, epidemiological, is that the right word? Yeah. Uh, uh, tidbit for people that are listening. Because uh, it kind of, I remember reading this headline and being like, ugh, um, polio is yeah. back around. Yeah. Can you explain that? Because I saw the headline and I didn't want to click because I just didn't need that uh, news in my life at that exact moment. But um, is that something we have to worry about? Why is this happening? Yeah. So um, there was a poliovirus case in a uh, pediatric patient mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in New York State. Um, and um, this was linked to a community um, of, of folks that don't typically vaccinate mm-hmm. uh, their children or space out vaccines mm-hmm. for their children. Uh, almost all of us have received um, the IPV, which is the polio vaccine in childhood. Um, and, and so, you know, the majority of us are still protected against poliovirus. Who you worry about are older individuals who that poliovirus immune response may have lapsed a, a little bit. And in general, we don't boost all vaccines because we do rely on some sense of herd immunity that mm. if we're able to, you know, reduce the amount of virus circulating in the community, we don't need to boost our older population. Our older populations can lean on the rest of the community yeah. who is vaccinated to prevent a disease. 
And so, yes, that was one case. But what's concerning is they've seen poliovirus now in the wastewater of New York State, uh, which is really worrisome, meaning there's more than one polio case um, out there. Um, and again, you know, it, you know, polio, poliovirus for um, the majority of cases is actually, you know, sometimes even an asymptomatic illness. However, in children, that's where we see poliovirus, you know, cause damage to the nervous system and cause things like um, uh, like paralysis, etc. Um, and so, again, it's it's something that you know, is on our radar and is all linked back to, you know, communities that are distrustful of vaccinations or are not vaccinating folks, um, which is really unfortunate. And again, this is the biggest threat that we have to public health is this like misinformation and disinformation that we're having against really well studied and and and, and historic sort of public health interventions. Yeah, I was going to say uh, people, I mean, polio was... Uh, a historic relic in in my book. Like, obviously, I got vaccinated, but it, it was, you know, carries similar connotations to, like, smallpox in that, like, not something my generation has ever had to worry about or deal with. Right. So for that to crop up in the news again, it's like, ugh, like, yeah. are we going through this? Is there concern that, you know, as misinformation or distrusted vaccines or in healthcare systems continue that other diseases like that could reoccur yeah no i mean we've we've been seeing that even before covid we've been seeing you know measles outbreaks in disneyland etc so again these are again it's it's making sure a vaccine immunity is high in a population is so important uh, because there's people who can't get vaccinated people who are too young to get vaccinated and the older population we talked about that may you know not be able to get vaccinated Again. So it's again, these populations all we, we that's public health, right? We rely on a community. Yes, we make individual decisions, but those decisions really impact the communities that we live in. And we and even more so now in a global world, the decisions we make in the United States also impact, you know, what's happening across across the globe. Um, and so again, it, you can't escape this interconnectedness that we have right now and infectious diseases all track along that. So we have to be able to, to really figure out ways that we can, you know, increase the amount of vaccine confidence populations have particularly on things like the polio vaccine that's been around for like you know over half a century mm -hmm. 70 years really since Jernisov created the polio vaccine so these are the things that you know a lot of us in public health are 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 fighting against or trying to make sure that we're able to create strategies to, to help increase people's confidence in you know these public health measures that really have saved millions upon millions of lives yeah well-spoken, and I, I love that uh, kind of overview when it comes to epidemiology and, and, and our continued battle against misinformation, because that's in part why the podcast exists, to get the word out. Um, final thoughts when it comes to broadly what you just mentioned, but also uh, monkeypox, anything that you want to make sure listeners uh, take home at the end of the day in regards to vaccines or, or really anything? No, I mean, I think this outbreak has really highlighted how much you know, queer communities take care of our own health. You know, like you mentioned, people sharing Insta stories, people sharing tips, tidbits, et cetera, pictures of their vaccine spots, et cetera. I mean, it's really been a community driven approach, which I, you know, have, I, I have really relished in seeing that seeing like, you know, we talked about in the first time we talked, like, you know, we as queer people have a unique relationship with public health for better or for worse. And, and for a lot of us, it's we rely on each other for a lot of this type of information. So it was it was nice to see the community coming together 
um, to really think about this outbreak. And, and again, encouraging vaccines. I had very little folks who were worried about the vaccine at all. It was more so like, how do I get one? Yeah. Uh, that people felt confident with the vaccine, people felt confident with, with these measures that they were able to take to protect themselves. Um, and, and that was something I, I really appreciated seeing as, you know, uh, as hard as it was getting through these last like eight weeks, I mean, again, it was really the community that spoke up to make sure that folks felt comfortable and confident with the information that they had. Yeah, extremely well said. Um, Anita, thank you so much again for your time. Yeah. Uh, we know we always have you to go to if another random infectious <laughs> disease pops up that we're concerned about. I'm okay with a break as well. I was gonna say, <laughs> hopefully hopefully things slowed out a little bit for you and you, have, you can stop giving these like <laughs> uh, press briefings on, on what exactly is going on. But uh, in the meantime, Anu, thank you so much. Yeah, of course, of course. Thank you. And that has been our part two about the monkeypox virus or MPV. If you are interested, you can visit the link below for more information. Thanks for listening.